Welcome to Album Clash, the podcast in which we take two albums that share a connection and pit them against each other inside the ring of death. Two albums enter, only one may leave. Metaphorically. This is Album Clash. Hello, this is Album Clash. I'm a Barbie girl in a Barbie world. And I very much am not. <laughs> not even going to be bothered to tell him your name anymore. Nope. So I am Kev. He is Tim. Uh, hello, everyone. Yeah, welcome to Album Clash. Uh, we start a new clash this week. So we are going to do this week. Kev's going to take us through uh, the Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds album from 1996, Murder Ballads. Next week, I'm going to lead us through PJ Harvey's album from 2000, Stories from the City, Stories from the Sea. So, Kev, I'm sure you're well aware of what the connections between these two albums are. So um, do you want to take the listeners through that? Well, there's a there's a myriad of connections between the two. So, for, for example, PJ Harvey is on Murder Ballads. Both albums are produced by um, Mick Harvey, A Bad Seed. And Nick Cave was in a romantic entanglement with uh, PJ Harvey. As I said um, last week, they were sexually involved. <laughs> <laughs> they had an enfranglement. And in fact, many of the songs on the Bad Seeds follow-up to Murder Ballads, uh, The Boatman's Call, were in fact written about the end of, of that relationship between Nick Cave and PJ Harvey. I mean, there's an absolutely wondrous um, song which is called West Country Girl that I strongly urge any listeners to check out because it is absolutely brilliant. It's, it is one of my favourite Bad Seed songs. Oh, yes, spoiler alert, I'm a bit of a fan. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this was my choice. Part of the reason I chose it, as I said last week, is every time we do a clash, it seems we call out one or two albums and say, oh, we'll do that one day, we'll do that one day. And I thought, we're actually going to do it. Nick Cave's someone we've spoken about a couple of times. As Kev's just said, he's, he's a big fan. And uh, yeah, this to me seemed the obvious connection. So I'm really looking forward to this one. Yeah, I am. I, I really enjoyed um, listening to both albums. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be good to get into them because there's there's a hell of a lot to get through in both of them um, for very different reasons. Uh, yeah, indeed. But before we do start going through, it's time for our regular feature, Can't Get You Out of My Head. So Kevin, have you been singing to your ablutions this week? No, unfortunately, I, I cannot top my previous um, shite song, uh, quite literally. My rubbish choice for this week is, I, I have to admit, a frankly woeful pun. So the week that we're in, so what is it, the 3rd of June today? 4th of June today. 4th of June. So earlier this week, the Real Madrid manager, Zindine Zidane, um, left his left his job. I'm sure you're wondering, why the hell am I bringing this up? No, so I know where this is going. And because you said terrible pun, I'm shaking my head in disapproval already. Well, I can't help it. Go like, on. No, oh, you, you started, so you'll finish. Yeah, I am going to finish. I'm going to finish myself off. Um, unfortunately, because there was mention of Zidane, it, my brain automatically made the link murder on Zidane's floor. <laughs> <laughs> so the song that has been stuck in my head all week is Sophie Ellis Baxter's uh, Murder on the Dance Floor. So Murder on the Dance Floor, like, so we both played five-a-side in uni and have played in various five-a-side leagues since then. 
there's always a bunch of fucking knobheads who think they're really cool by, oh, we're called murder on the dance floor. And like, they're only slightly less dickheads than the kid, than the fellas that call themselves into women. Yes. Or into Yunnan. Dreadful, dreadful humans. Yeah. <laughs> quite, quite so. Yeah. That is a shit song. Uh, much like last week, um, I gave a terrible reason why that song was in my head. You, the thing is, you've set the bar for yourself so high. This is, this is very much your be here now to last time's morning glory. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not as good. <laughs> it's very much the stroke second album. <laughs> we should have ended it after last time. <laughs> oh, dear. So my shite, I, I mentioned the other week when I was mentioning my good song, that I've been listening to a lot of prog recently. And you know, when you're on Spotify, well, my app of choice is YouTube Music, but any of those streaming services, and you're just on on random, you know, you play a song and then it'll just keep playing something which is the algorithm considers is similar. Yeah. There's been some odd odd things that have been followed up on my certainly on mine. Yeah. And I'm guessing this is where we're going. Yeah. So one prog rock band that I really don't like is Genesis. Bill fucking Collins. <laughs> Bill fucking Collins. Do you know what I like even less than Genesis? Mike and the Mechanics. <laughs> you know where this is going. <laughs> fucking hate that song. <laughs> oh, the Living Years by Mike and the Mechanics from 1989. Just came on my, my, random, my random shuffle play. Why? Because Mike Rutherford was in Genesis. That's literally the connection. <laughs> oh, dreadful! I mean, it's the, like the the on the nose. They're absolutely on the nose lyrics. I know it's a poignant song about some, you know, a man who who misses his dad, but the lyrics are just oh. and the video. <laughs> I've never seen the video. Mike Rutherford is wearing the cheesiest. Pat Sharp, smashy and nicey woolly jumper you've ever seen in your life. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, awful, awful song. I apologise to any Mike and the Mechanics songs, but it's fucking shit and I hate it. So that's been stuck in my head because of the YouTube algorithm. I mean, like, so people talk about the 80s in some slightly glowing terms. And I'm not, like, certainly style-wise, I don't quite understand why, because it was dreadful. Like, certainly my remembrance of it. I mean, the fucking shell suit came out of the the end of the 80s. I had one, and I look shite in it. I'm sorry, like, there is so much bad polyester and nylon. Well, even even if you go before that, a lot of things which... Eddie Murphy, right? What was he wearing in Raw? Fucking hell. That that <laughs> this purple and black PDC suit. So, and even if we talk about Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy's role, which there are some amazing bits in it. Like you watch it back now, there's some problematic stuff oh, yeah. in there. Yeah, there is, there is. But again, as we've mentioned, Richard Pryor before. Well, yeah, Robin Williams the same. But anyway, we're not going down that road. Oh my god! Like I've managed to take us down the woke hole again. Hold that thought. (laughs) (laughs) It's not Wookie hole anymore. It's Wookie hole. Uh, Yeah, but you're right. The '80s stylistically was was not something to remember fondly, in my opinion. No, not at all. Okay, that's the shite out of the way. Um, What do you want to give a tip of the hat to? So. I have been absolutely waxing lyrical about uh, this band that I've, again, randomly come across. So 
I love when you come across a label that you really like and you have a lot of respect for. So, you know, like Sabella Union, Sub Pop, Domino uh, Recordings. I've always had a strong love for particularly the compilations of soul jazz records. They do some phenomenal stuff and have helped me get into some really deep cuts of uh, Studio One reggae stuff. And, you know, there's there's loads of great compilations. I was just scanning their website and they, I happened to come across a compilation which was called Two Synthesizers and a Drum Machine. Now, how can you not click on a link like that? And the first song, the first song on on that album, was uh, "Too Much Money" by a LA female three piece uh, called Automatic. Not the, not to be confused with the Automatic who did "What's Happening Over the Hill." <laughs> Monster, yeah, no. very much not to be confused. <laughs> I think I've that. now got my shite stuck in my head for next time. <laughs> <laughs> and they are absolutely phenomenal. I can only describe it. It's really Joy Division sounding. It's dead kraut rock it's it's great Ooh. it's a really good like the album's called signal which i bought um last week and i've not stopped listening to it it's a, it's about three years old that album and it's fucking great so thank you soul jazz records for pointing me in the direction of a band i would never have come across no so uh, well as you said the, the the name of the compilation what was it two synthesizers and a drum machine yeah so that's phenomenal to start with then you've told me that there's Krautrock and Joy Division influences. Uh, yep, I'll be listening to that. Thank you very much. No problem. Uh, mine. So, I want to give a shout to something that's that's yeah, well, an album that came out earlier this year, back in March. Jane Weaver. Her well, actually, her eleventh studio album was called Flock. Jane Weaver is from well, she's from Witness, which we won't hold against her. Perfectly fine. <laughs> Part of the world. Sporty Spice was from Witness, wasn't she? I've no idea. Yeah, she was. Like one of Girls Aloud was like Runcorn Witness based. Yeah, you're the right. The ginger one. I'm pretty sure Mel She was uh, Mel She. Mel Chi. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Mel, Mel Mel B. Or was it which one was it? Oh, I'm just getting rid of this. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Mel C was from Witness because she was pretending to be a jarg scouser. Anyway. Um, so Jay Weaver's album Flock, released in March this year. And the song I want to particularly highlight is called Stages of Phases. It is a delightful piece of glam synth pop. Oh, it's got a stomping beat. It's got lovely, seductive, breathy vocals, a catchy melody. Let me just say this. If you like golf rap, you'll love Stages of Phases. It's a great tune. Okay. All, all those words that you've used there. Again, I'm very excited by. So uh, it's another one I, I came across from Mark Riley's show on Six Music. And uh, so, yeah, that, again, but that that is a, a mind that we will continue to go back to for our inspiration because um, he plays good music. He really does. I've, I've always had a lot of time for Mark Riley's show. Like He plays people that you wouldn't necessarily hear straight away but and he pl- he loves a garage band he does and as as we both know i'm a bastard for the garage band <laughs> yeah so yeah that the whole album is a really interesting album uh but stages of phase is a particular standout so uh as we usually do we'll tweet the links out to the uh the good stuff and the shy stuff we'll stick them on our insta page as well so you can um you can you can get into what we've had stuck in our heads yeah so in, in, hopefully you um, get some new music from that. Indeed. And as we always say, if 
anything you want to give a shout to that you'd like us to call out on the show, then uh, we're always on the lookout for new things to listen to. Very much so. All right. Okay. So shall we start going through murder ballads? Yes, we shall. Over to you, Kevin. So it is the ninth uh, studio album for uh, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds, a band that formed out of the remnants of The Birthday Party, which was a band that Nick Cave and Mick Harvey, sorry, both played in and were key members of. And they were the driving force, really, between be, behind behind both bands. Murder Ballads itself was recorded roughly between 93 and 95. It kind, it kind of developed over a long period of time. It was released on Mute Records on the 5th of February in 1996. And the album, it's interesting how it developed. Essentially, the first song on the album, or the first song that was written for the album, was O'Malley's Bar, uh, which was written during the sessions for, the pre- for a previous album, Henry's Dream. As was the first song on the album, Song of Joy. They they, they both were. Right, okay. And much more uh, material for the actual album uh, developed during the making of Let Love In, the previous album to Murder Ballads. So Nick Cave envisioned the collection of songs that kind of developed to be part of a film, but he was unable to get the project off the ground with the specific director that he, ha- he had in mind. And the project coalesced around these songs, and many of them are based on their Nick Cave's and the band's reworking of very traditional murder ballads, which is a long, a long tradition in music, uh, particularly American music and Australian. You know, like there's lots of history of uh, the ballads of Ned Kelly and everything. So this is sort of something that Nick Cave, being obviously being Australian, has developed from. And his interest in sort of blues and uh, music from from the south in in America, um, and that that's that's really where the the project kind of coalesced from. So there's there's another little part to that story. So in '94, Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds had been on the Lollapalooza tour across the states. <laughs> Apparently, they had a shite time. They fucking hated it. <laughs> and um... they are not a Lollapalooza band. <laughs> no, <laughs> not at all. So they decided they wanted to record an album that was so challenging that it could not possibly be taught <laughs> to an audience that wasn't ready to receive Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. So in an interview with with Guitars in 2011, uh, Nick Cave said that this was a multifunctional record and that it was necessary for a lot of reasons. One, we wanted to make a record that was literally impossible to tour with no matter what. The other thing was that I wanted to make a record that was just enjoyable, that was open to various other musicians to come along, do exactly what they wanted, and also do lots of duets. Again, something we'll talk about as, as we go through the songs. But um, but yeah, as you said, like whoever's booking Lollapalooza that year, that audience is not going to be into the bad seeds. And I mean, well, and particularly given the bad seeds output before. So previous, like Red Right Hand had been a hit of some description but you know like he's 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 doing songs like mercy seats which is about you know the story of of someone on the electric chair you know this this isn't accessible stuff <laughs> and the irony of of it all that doing an entire album which seems so nick cave and the bad seeds about murder 
is what absolutely smashes them into the mainstream. And we will obviously talk about that because there is a there is a key song on, on the album yeah. which enables that to occur. But it's absolutely wild that a concept album about traditional songs of murder and death becomes the thing that gets them pop like you know, like I'm like it's because of this album that I got into him. I have merely one more fact before we uh before we talk about how we discovered the album, although I think you just you just gave it away a little bit. Um, yeah, there are apparently 64 people who lose their life across the course of this album. So interestingly, I have a different number. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I have 75 murders and one dog. Oh well, I got the dog. Yeah, that's okay. yeah. <laughs> well, I, I will believe you. Um, Genius.com has lied to me. So um look, we we both are entirely dependent on the internet for our research. <laughs> Hang on, Kevin. Are you suggesting that things on the internet are, are not true? Um well I, yes. Yes. I, <laughs> I was gonna try and think of something clever to say then and just but no. Yeah, yes, I am. Okay, so lots of people are killed on this album, and yes, a dog, as, <laughs> as we will talk about. <laughs> All right, so um, as we usually do, uh, let's talk about how we discovered the album. So you've just you've just given a hint, but um, yeah, just tell us a bit more. How 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 did you get into this album? So the gateway, I think, for many people on this album was the main the the main single from from the album, which was uh, "Where the Wild Roses Grow," which received heavy heavy MTV rotation. I can remember it being on MTV a lot, and. Um, I had never heard of Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds before that. And I had no interest in Kylie Minogue's musical output at that at that stage. But then this absolutely fucking wild song that seemingly came out of nowhere made me stand up and pay attention to this band. And from that, I wanted to know much more and listen to more. And from, you know, I, I got into the band, I bought the album and I have have loved them ever since, really. So before I tell my story, there's one thing I want to say. So whilst I, I, I see your point about Kylie's musical output, in the year before Where the Wild Roses Grow, she had released Confide in Me, which is a fucking belter of a song. It is. And I think and when we get to talk to that song, I think it's important. It's part of the journey that she was making to move away from yeah. her. Stock Aiken Waterman pop- shit. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um no, okay. So for me, <laughs> my route into this album is a song which you've already mentioned, but one which isn't even on this album. <laughs> so as we've said many times, as Kev's just said, we were teenagers in the 90s. And yes, I was familiar with Where the Wild Roses Grow because it, as you said, was in heavy rotation on MTV. I can't say as I was particularly infused by it at the time. I mean, to my shame, I was I, I was listening to heavy guitar-based music at that time, but, you know, what the fucking hell did 14-year-old mean? So there you go. So whilst I knew that song, it, to me, that wasn't the gateway. What was the gateway for me is I'm a big fan of the Scream films, and the main theme to all of those films is Red Right Hand, which was on the previous album, Let Love In. And having loved hearing that song in those films... I listened to Let Love In and thought, fucking hell, yeah, this is good. And it was then that I listened to Murder Ballads and got into to Nick Cave and the Bad Season. Whilst I admit I'm certainly not as much of a fan as you, I, I was still 
captivated, if you like, by the darkness in a lot of their songs. Yeah, and it's it's a theme that they they have continued to return back to time and time again. And one of the things that we will certainly talk about is the literacy, the sorry, the literate nature of Nick Cave's writing. Um, it's it's fantastic. It's so so well put together. There's certain certain phrases, and that continues obviously into into his later work. But this album shows it up so well in in so many different ways. There's beautiful phrasing all over the place. I thought you were going to talk about the three R's there for a second. <laughs> you said literacy. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Okay, so let's talk about the artwork. So it's it's given the album. It's not a particularly visually stunning uh, cover. And oh, that's interesting. I don't agree with you. So I'm thinking of the album before "Let Love In," where you've got a bare-chested Nick Cave with Let Love In written on his chest and sort of in a biblical pose, if you like. Um, This is much more a simpler, it's a winter scene with a cabin in the middle of it and written in very sort of bold type is Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds murder ballads. I I don't dislike the album cover. Um, I suppose it's, it's simplicity doesn't really tell you anything about the album. Maybe that's the point I'm getting at. I'm not sure I agree, although perhaps I'm interpreting it with the benefit of knowing what the album is about, although given the album's title, it's pretty hard to mistake what it's about. So, yeah, as you said, it's a painting of a of a winter scene with a lone log cabin in a moonlit wood, painted by Swiss artist Jean-Frédéric Schneider in what looks to me like an impressionist style, like a... Um, anyway... I'm not an art critic, so to me, the album cover, the image, the scene creates a sense of mystery, creates a sense of foreboding, and I think it sets the scene for what lies within. Now, again, perhaps I'm being a bit wanky and reading things into it, knowing what is within, but that's how I interpret it. I think it actually sets it off really well. No, I mean, that's a perfectly fair interpretation of the of the album cover. I think it would be very un-Cave for... There to be an actual murder on the front. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think you would, and certainly wouldn't benefit any like from from something that literal on the front. It, it's a perfectly fine album cover. I'm not having a pop at it. I think it just isn't as visually arresting as some of some of the other ones. No, that's think. fair. That's fair. I say to me, I I think it creates a sense of intrigue, which yeah. I like. Okay, so should we um, should we get into it then? I go on. Why not? Got nothing better to do. So the album opens, which, as Tim said, um, was a, one of the first songs to be written for the album, Song of Joy, which can only really be described as it's an eerie account of the narrator's wife and his three daughters being murdered by an unknown serial killer. So you say unknown serial killer. I think by the end of the song, it's pretty clear who the serial killer is. The the initial thing is that it's unknown. Yeah, no, you yeah it emerges. Yeah, okay, okay, fair it, fair enough. Oh, yes, it, it, very much so. Uh, so so yeah. Spoiler alert: <laughs> <laughs> the narrator appears to have killed his own family. Although, is, does he ever actually admit that? He never admits it. It's sort of alluded to, and again, that speaks to the the brilliance of of Nick Cave's writing that 
it, it's done in a way where you kind of you know that he's done it, but you don't know that he's done it. And that that goes on in some of the other songs as well that that we can talk about. I mean, like the the way the tension builds in the song is fantastic. The as I say, the lyrics are, are brilliant, and it's the sinister nature of it. I mean, what like as an opening yeah. to an album, like of the of the ones we've talked about, we've talked about tour de forces and that kind of thing we've never had one that sets you off kilter straight away so this is what i've i've written it's an arresting start yeah it's dark it's foreboding musically as well you know the way the drums and the mm-hmm. and the bass line just drive it forward the way nick cave sings sort of that deliberate off-key drawl I love the piano part that goes through the verses it, it's lifted straight from john carpenter's halloween but it's fucking perfect for the song yeah well yeah as you said it puts you off kilter straight away it's an arresting start to the album i mean if the title of the album or the artwork as certainly as i've interpreted it didn't make it clear enough surely after you've listened to this song you can be in no doubt whatsoever that this is not going to be a comfortable listen i mean the thing that that like genuinely makes me laugh when i think when i think about it is as we will go on to talk about, and I, I do apologise, we keep referencing the the weather while while roses grow. But if you were a Kylie fan who was tempted to buy this album, like <laughs> we'll come on to that. You right, are having right. a very uncomfortable start. <laughs> like, what the fucking hell is, have I bought? What is this? One thing I want to call out: we mentioned Red Right Hand. This was originally titled Red Right Hand 2, and it was supposed to be a sequel to Red Right Hand. So that lyric is quoted in the song, Mm -hmm. and it's a quote from um, John Milton's Paradise Lost. And the other thing, so the three daughters of the eponymous hero, heroine of the song, Joy, are called Hilda, Hattie, and Holly. Are you aware of why those names were chosen? I'm not, no. They are the names of three of Joseph Goebbels' children. Is that right? Yeah. Wow. How Nick Cave is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very Nick Cave, that. Yeah, good start. I like it a lot. It's a great it's a great start to the album. If you are hoping for a comfortable pop ride, you've got on the wrong bus. You need to get off now. Because <laughs> yeah. it ain't getting any easier. <laughs> Very much so. You are in the queue for the wrong roller coaster. So from that opening, we then go into the band's reworked version of a traditional US folk song, Stagger Lee. So it's a very it's a traditional US folk song about the murder of Billy Lyons by Stag Lee Shelton in St. Louis, Missouri in 1895. Various versions of the song have been produced over the years. Dylan's done one. Uh, the Black Keys did one relatively recently. And also Neil Sedaka. I've got more. <laughs> I can Tina, Pat Boone. Pat Boone. James Brown, Wilson Pickett, Dr. John, and Huey Lewis and the News. <laughs> See, we always end with the one like that undercuts it. So I thought Neil Sedaka un- undercut it. Then I, I went one bigger. <laughs> you went Bateman. <laughs> 
Was Hip to Be Square a uh, their version <laughs> yes, of Stagger Lee? <laughs> My apologies. Well, that is an eclectic mix of people. It's very much is. song. But as you said, this is much more a rework than it is a cover. It is darker than the traditional version. It's more gruesome. More sweary. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a sweary old song. So Stag Stagger Lee uh, murders in this version the barkeeper. Billy Lyons and another Billy. So he murders three people. Billy Dilly. Yeah, Billy Dilly. Yeah, but the bar the barkeep was talking sass. So, you know, we had it coming. <laughs> he was talking sass. <laughs> was shooting his mouth off. <laughs> uh, by the way, I just want to call back to something you said a, a second ago, because this will annoy our American listeners. You called it St. Louis, Missouri, which should be the correct pronunciation, but apparently it's St. Louis. So our apologies to all our... Um, uh, stateside brethren, but um, you're wrong and we're right. And I mean, we can barely speak English, English, so you know, <laughs> we're fucked if we're trying to speak yours. Exactly. Sorry. <laughs> oh, please carry on. It's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal piece of work. I've always enjoyed this song. It's a staple of their live set. And it's always a treat when uh, Nick Cave embodies Staggerly. It's It's brilliant. So he's having loads of fun as he's singing this, isn't he? He's having yeah. so much fun. Uh, one thing we didn't call out, and I've not written the exact lyrics down, but it, he, yes, he kills Billy Dilly after he has uh, been sexually involved <laughs> with Billy Dilly's woman, Nellie Brown. But he doesn't kill Billy, D- Billy Dilly before he makes Billy Dilly um, blow him. Indeed. Um, do you know what? I'd completely forgotten that. <laughs> And if I, if you interpret the lyrics, and not just the lyrics, but the 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 grunting and groaning noises that Ke- that Cave makes throughout it, the point at which he um, unloads into uh, Billy Dilly is the point at which he unloads into Billy Dilly. Which I mean, you've got to be a fucking good shot to not blow your own cock off there, surely. <laughs> I cannot follow that sentence. (laughs) (laughs) So after Staggerly. I love Staggerly. It's It's great. great. Yeah, it's it's right. I've got things to say about the music, but I'm not going to bother now. I love it. Um, So we we will move on from the entanglements we got into there. Um, onto Henry Lee featuring Stagger's lad, <laughs> Stag's lad, um, featuring PJ Harvey, and again it's a reworking of a Australian traditional song uh, referred to as Young Hunting. So at the time of recording, Nick Cave was in a relationship with PJ Harvey, and that's reflected in the video where they they, they sort of have a, a slow dance at the at the end together so yeah they do they do I, I i had read through my research for the album that it was actually when they filmed the video which is quite a quite quite a, a sexually charged video not, not explicit in any way but as you said they have a slow dance they're very close to all it was when they filmed the video that they discovered the chemistry, and I read that that's where their relationship started. But I might be wrong. I don't know. I couldn't. I couldn't say for for a hundred percent to say to refute that or or confirm it. I mean, again, it's it's beautifully done. And one thing that we will certainly go on to talk about, and certainly you can say from 
the first three songs in this album is the breadth of of the music that's that's produced. It's all very different, but all beautifully balanced. And I mean, the the, the main note I had here was just the the beautiful juxtaposition between the gruffness of his voice and the, the soft sensuous nature of her of her voice it, it works so well it I, I love Henry Lee it's a beautiful beautiful song uh, I'm laughing because I've written the exact <laughs> same thing so and, and as well as that you can tick off something else on your album clash bingo cards here because I'm going to use the word palette cleanser paste change because <laughs> it is after you've after you've just gone through Staggerly, this brings you down. This is a completely different tone. And I think this is important, actually. And it's something we'll come back to later uh, and, and as, as we continue to go through the album. That after you've had certainly one song, if not two, certainly Staggerly, that, that really glorifies the actions of its villain. And it is a man, well, as I said, blowing his load in more ways than one. To have this one, which is a woman scorned, exacting her revenge is important for me. And yeah, as you said, we've gone to the woke hole again here. <laughs> Wokey hole. <laughs> but it, to me, it's important. Um, no, I, as... I, I think, I think you, you're perfectly right that in another band's hands, this could be quite a crass album where yeah. it's, it's very sort of misogynistic. It's lots of male onto female violence and uh, glorifying in that. Whereas, like the beauty of this of this song and other songs on it is that the female protagonist isn't the victim here and very much has her revenge, you know, in it. So, and that that's not a sole sort of sop to say, oh, you know, like I, I'm a bit of a liberal, so I'll have one song and then the rest of them will be the traditional fella murder and a woman. That's not the case on this album. That no. men and women do murder. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so as you said, I think PJ Harvey's is she's just glorious on this. Listen, we're going to talk about her obviously a lot next week. But <laughs> it's a perfect song for her to sing. Yeah, she's soulful and sultry, but at the same time vengeful and menacing. I adore this song. Yeah, I loved it the first time I heard it. I love it now. It's great. It's it is. It it's a it's a great great piece of work. And as as we say, three songs in, three entirely different musical genres and all beautifully beautifully done the, uh, yeah so yes very different musical genres in all of them i would say that the music is understated and that seems to me deliberate because that mm-hmm. it allows the vocals to come through and tell you the stories tell you what needs to be told in the murder ballad and um yeah good stuff enjoying myself so far yeah I mean, again, I I will usually use the phrase at this point, having a lovely old time. We're, we're listening to an album about murders <laughs> and I'm having a lovely old time. I think we um we should say at this point that um we are we are not pro murder. We are not pro murder. So uh, just say no, kids. <laughs> okay, so then we move on to the next song, which is "Lovely Creature." And again, it's a completely different song with a completely different sound to what's gone before. And my note here, and I apologise if you've written the same or something similar, Cave sounds so brooding, sinister and intense in his his role as a protagonist. 
it's a, it's a haunting atmospheric song it it's brilliant it's so good so i've said i've said deep and perilous <laughs> <laughs> so there's a couple of things i want to say here so this is apparently a retelling of 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 a of a poem called pretty polly which is apparently can be traced as far back as the early 18th century and nothing to do with the tights <laughs> or parrots <laughs> Um, it has also been called the Gosport Tragedy or the Cruel Ship's Carpenter. It tells the story of a man who leads a lonely young woman astray over hills, over mountains, over ranges by great pyramids and sphinxes. And then it would seem he kills her, dumps her body in an open grave below the slow drifting sands, as the lyrics say. So you said brooding, I said perilous, caves vocals. The, the angelic backing vocals are the perfect counterpoint. So the, yeah. to me, the angelic, the, the backing vocals are from the titular lovely creature. Mm-hmm. So with, with without meaning to sound slightly wanky for... Kev, for, we all, this show is about us being wanky, all right? To Just be honest, I, I always sound a bit wanky. <laughs> so that kind of insistence, sort of the lovely creature refrain, and it did bring to mind... The you know the the Telltale Heart the uh, the Edgar Allan Poe sort oh, of oh yeah okay that reminiscent of the thing that you yeah, did yeah um, yeah yeah like that, that. that's what it, that's what it brought to mind for me so uh, mine mine's very much more rudimentary is that the uh, <laughs> the tune that the lonely creature in back of vocals are singing is um. <laughs> <laughs> I fucking love that tune as well. That's a great tune. <laughs> um, right, just a couple of things musically. The, I love the bass line in this, and I love yeah. the ro- the rolling drums, which it, it, it's like a march. Or, dare I say, the way the rhythm section drives a song forward is a bit like a rolling train. Is this Nick Cave paying some sort of homage to Johnny Cash? I don't may, Maybe it's just me reading too much into it, as I always do. I mean... It- it's it's not implausible because um, John uh, Nick Cave is a huge huge Johnny Cash fan, as we've said before, yeah. And Johnny Cash did a wondrous, an absolutely stupendous uh, cover version of the Mercy Seat. In fact, yeah. it's absolutely brilliant, and I love that that cover version. So it wouldn't surprise me because the links between the two are are, are there, really. Yeah. As I say, I might be talking absolute bollocks, but to me, there was a a lineage, as we often say. So there's one more. I'd love to know, and this is my this is my nerdy, you know, musician side of me. I'd love to know how they did the sound effects on on this album. So throughout this, there's a there's a sound effect which is like the roaring wind, and I've no idea how it's done, but it sounds so evocative of mm-hmm. a howling wind. It's phenomenal stuff. And I, I just, I really like to know how they did it. A tempest, if you like. <laughs> very good. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> I mean, I'm getting very literate. Um, <laughs> it's, it's Nick Cave's inspiring me. <laughs> Art thou feared? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you got that. That's good stuff. Well, I've gone very highbrow now. <laughs> oh, yeah. This is not our usual way. We're, we're gonna have to get... <laughs> Can we go back to talking about Fanny Canoes and doing a big poo? <laughs> yeah. We, we are going to have to, because we will lose our audience if we if we keep going this highbrow. 
All right, in that case, let's move on. Okay, so we we go on to the song that I've already mentioned numerous times uh, thus far, uh, Where the Wild Roses Grow. So featuring uh, Kylie Minogue. And what you can say, and I already have really, is that this song propelled the band well into mainstream consciousness and certainly helped Kylie on her journey to move away from her previous Stock Aitken and Waterman past, um, leading to her indie album that she did with the Manic Street Preachers that got released on the same day as Diana died, um, which is why it sunk without a trace. (laughs) Hold that thought specifically about things on this clash occurring on the same day as notable world events, because we're going to talk about that next week. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I I quite liked some of the tracks on that album that she did with the Mannix. Some Kind of Bliss was a good song. There, there was some all right songs on there, but like, unfortunately, when she tried to reposition herself as indie two years too late. Yeah. And unfortunately, there were other things going on at the time. It's when she went disco that she really broke it. And I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I quite like a lot of Kylie's output in the 2000s. It's good. It, it's perfectly good pop music. Anyway, so we, we go about talking about Nick Cave because yeah, this is not, this is not Kylie Clash. <laughs> Although, like, if you had Kylie Clash, then there's Kylie Minogue and well, you can do Minogue Clash, can't you? Kylie versus Danny, only one yes, winner. I, suppose. <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, because Danny was in um, Home Home and Away. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, American listeners turn it off now. What the fuck are you two talking about? <laughs> We've got highbrow again. <laughs> no. Because <laughs> Home and Away is the epitome of highbrow um, entertainment. <laughs> so anyway, Where the Wild Roses Grow. <laughs> the song itself was inspired by uh, the traditional song Down in the Willow, Down in the Willow Garden, which was a tale of a man courting a woman and murdering her whilst they were out. Um which is definitely what happens in this song. Uh, the video itself, as we've talked about, and how the heavy rotation that it had, um, it was designed to be reminiscent of Millet's uh, painting Ophelia um, from 1851. So I, well, we've, we've, both, we've both talked about that, that video being in heavy rotation, and I remember how, how striking it was at the time, mm-hmm. and not graphic in the way that it depicts the violent acts that occur in the song, but certainly... It's very clear from from what the video shows you what is going on, and when you hit, when you're seeing that played at tea time on a Wednesday just before you're about to watch Neighbours at Home and Away, it's um well quite striking as I said, yeah. And Cave himself said the song was written with Kylie in mind, so he tried to write a song for her for many years, um, but had had not been successful and. When he was developing this project and he he wrote he wrote the song and it had that kind of call and response thing from uh, from the main character and their victim. Um, when he sent it to her, she replied the next day and was like, "Yeah, I want to record this." And I'm not surprised because it's a it's the beauty of the of of the song is how like particularly Kylie Kylie's. Bit like in the last in the last verse where you know what's going to happen and they cut it because obviously she doesn't know the next bit. Uh, it's oh, it's it's brilliant. It's so so that's uh, and the way it's so cleverly foreshadowed right from the start. Yes, 
They call me the Ward Rose, though my name was Eliza Day. Why they call me that, I do not know. Yeah. And that's just, it's so clever. It really, really, as you said, beautiful. The string part in this, oh God, it makes your heart break. <laughs> Sumptuous backing. And yeah. it, it's perfect. And I wanted to talk about that because if you've heard any of the early Bad Seed stuff, I mean, there's, there's some really there's some really good stuff there, but I think what was what certainly helped transform their sound was when Warren Ellis got involved, and Warren Ellis got involved on the previous album, um, Let Love In, and um, obviously he has a, you know a, a key element within this song, and Warren Ellis's importance within the Bad Seed has has developed as time has gone on, and he's, he's really important in the sound in this song as well. Uh, yeah, it's it's um, it's beautiful. It sounds like it sounds like nothing else on the album. That's not a bad thing. No, it's a good well, thing. No, uh, we well, talked the about the nothing... diversity. No, exactly. This is a standout, beautiful song. A couple of things. So it was as we've already said. It was it was a single. It was the lead single from the album. It, it reached eleven in the UK and number two in Australia. Uh, <laughs> you you mentioned earlier about people that might be Kylie fans buying this album and going. <laughs> Nick Cave himself was well aware of that. <laughs> <laughs> of course he was. He said of the appearance of Kylie, uh, I was kind of aware that people would go and buy murder ballads and listen to it and wonder, what the fuck have I bought this for? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I adore this. Yeah, it's wonderful. It, it's perfect. It's, it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Yeah, there's nothing more to say on it. So we will move on to... Um, my partner's um, favourite song on this album, uh, The Curse of Millhaven. So the Bad Seeds um, bassist, Martin uh, Casey, described it as as a knees up, a sort of mad polka. And it bloody well is. It's, I mean, after the haunting, beautiful tragedy of the previous song, this is a gleeful, glorious slaughter by a mad... 14-year-old called Lottie. Loretta, yes, indeed. So so I'm sorry to cut, cut across you. So you just before you go in to tell the story of the song, musically, you're absolutely right. It Right from the start, you know you're in for something mischievous. Yes. The bluegrass style you get with the, the violins playing, you've got some accordion there, you've got an organ part. I can just imagine a group of carnies playing this and having a lovely old time playing it. it yeah, it's great. Well, and I mean, and I know the band themselves have referred to this as the party album. I mean, there's some songs that are not very party. <laughs> no. But in terms of this song, like this is the 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 most glorious and upbeat and sort of, I suppose, glorifying in the in the slaughter of it. Um, I love the fact that it's described on the album as it features the talents of the Moron Tabernacle Choir. Love that pun. Um, which is basically like a load of the collabor- collaborators on the album are the backing choir. Um, mm-hmm. But because they couldn't get them to be in tune, they described themselves as the Moron tab- Tabernacle <laughs> Choir, which I which I absolutely adore. It's, it's really funny, this song, and has so many great lines in it. And the funniest of all, and one of the darkest of all is right at the end where Loretta has been uh, incarcerated for her crimes. And um, <laughs> the lyric is, 
They ask me if I feel remorse, and I answer, why, of course. There's so much more I could have done if they'd let me. <laughs> well, I was I was just thinking, I didn't think that's where you're going. Um, I thought you were going to say, it's Rorschach, it's Prozac, and everything is groovy. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a brilliant line. It is. It, it is a brilliant line. <laughs> so, uh, the, the, the chord progression, the melody, it's the same as, as Henry Lee. And apparently, Nick Cave gave PJ Harvey the choice of doing a duet on this or a duet on, on Henry Lee. She obviously chose Henry Lee, which I adore. And I think she made the right choice, but I would still love to hear a version of this song by PJ Harvey. Oh yeah. That, that would be very interesting. It, it really would. Okay. Uh, so it, the fictional town of Millhaven in the song is apparently inspired by the um, blue rose murders by author Peter Straub, which are set in the fictional town mm-hmm. of Millhaven. In turn, which is inspired by the real-life town of Millhaven, Illinois. So, any residents of Millhaven, Illinois? Uh, I know we do have one listener in Illinois. Uh, if, if you're in Millhaven, then, uh, hey, your town's famous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's more than, more than we've got. What I love about this is that Nick Cave's singing becomes more maniacal yeah, as each verse passes, I just, I, this is just brilliant. <laughs> it is. It's. It's so. It's so well done. Any, who would have thought that a murder polka about a fourteen-year-old mass murderer who sets fire, who sets fire to a slum or allows a bus full of children to go into a lake? Well, exactly. She she it's takes like... she takes the thin ice signs from a frozen lake and allows a lot of children. To... And as you said, so this 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 is the song in which the dog is killed. Indeed, little Biko, little Biko. Uh, she claims that she did not do it, uh, but as she said, two high school psychos. It was two high school psychos, but she'll sing to it all now. They've got me started. I love that <laughs> lyric as well. <laughs> Once again, murder is bad, kids. Don't do it. Yeah, murder's bad, but Nick Cave makes it sound fun. So I think. From the utter glee of Lottie's murderous rampage, um, we move on to the kindness of strangers. And I think the position of this song works really well. Um, the the tragedy of it balances the absolute the foot the foot like we were both sort of smirking and laughing and big grins on our face talking about that, and it works really well to sort of juxtapose it. Yeah, I agree entirely, and and I think it's important again. So as not to be seen as there are clearly songs on this album that glorify murder, lots of them. This isn't one of those. This is one of those which is which is telling of the horrors of it and the the tragedy of it. And to come after the curse of Millhaven, I think it's really important. Actually, I think it's well placed for that. So the protagonist, Mary Bellows, is charmed and then brutally murdered by a man she meets on the road. Um, and I've written down the, the lyric from quite close to the end cuffed to the bed with a rag in her mouth and a bullet in her head. I mean, it, it, like just in that short sentence, you understand everything that's gone on there. Striking, isn't it? Yes. And um, I think the the weeping that's at the end of the song essentially makes you an uncomfortable protagonist, an uncomfortable observer of the horror that's gone on here. And I think, again, that's really important after The Curse of Millhaven that... This isn't something to to glorify, and this isn't something yeah. to to in, to enjoy. 
this this woman's been murdered. Poor Mary Bellows. You should be upset by this. Yeah. So the weeping is very disarming, is what I've written, mm-hmm. uh, and it, for exactly that reason, musically, this sounds very Dylan to me. Very, very Dylan. Yeah. And we'll talk about Dylan more in a bit. Obviously, I don't dislike this. I, no, I'm going to go back. I like this song, but it doesn't really go anywhere. And I know we said on earlier tracks that the music is understated to allow the story to be told. And that is definitely the case here. And although I've said it's important in terms of where it's positioned on Mm -hmm. the album, after the Curse of Millhaven and where the Wild Roses grow before that, this musically is lacking something for me. I understand why. And as I said, I do like this. And I agree with everything you've said about the importance of the message and the way it's delivered. It just doesn't completely work for me. That's all. No, and that, that's that's a fair point. I, d- I don't necessarily agree with that. And I think, the for me, the simplicity of the music, and I think throughout the album, the, the, where the music is, is simple, it's where the the lyrical content is really um, really packs much more of a punch when the music is a little more subdued. So I I really like well like this song is is a is a funny way to describe it. I re- well no I think that's it's fine. Yeah I I know what you're saying. I, I think it's fine to say that. Um, yeah. You know we, we we can like things which make us feel uncomfortable. uncomfortable. And that's yeah, what people this like is. horror films. Uh, well exactly. For some reason, my wife loves them. No idea why. No, I mean it's it's not something that's ever ever grabbed me. But you know, yeah, exactly. Anyway, um, <laughs> yeah. So Again, we've what... we've wandered into film clash. <laughs> that's an or that already exists as a podcast. I'm not going to step on that territory because I yeah. want to get sued. Because um, we we already have our eye on vegetable on fruit and vegetable fruit clash, clash yeah. biscuit clash, rock clash. That's where the money's at, Kev. Crisp clash. <laughs> You knows it. Where do you stand on prawn cocktail? I'm a fan of prawn cocktail, Chris. I, I really like him. Good. I mean, a, a skip, I don't think is powerful enough. I think it needs Agreed. more flavour. Agreed. It would be better with more flavour. Agreed. Thank you. Do you remember in the early 2000s they tried to do like sort of sweet flavoured crisps? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> so genuinely, this is the thing because I tried it and it was dreadful. So they had like a vanilla flavoured monster munch. Oh, my goodness. It was fucking awful. I'm not surprised. That's awful. Yes. No. Like, I d- that, it's just wrong. That is wrong. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. I remember when Walker's released uh, pizza-flavoured crisps. Pizza-flavoured like crisps are shite. 90s. They were shite. Yeah, they, they were never shite. Horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I also remember Walker's um, football tie-in. So you had Salt and Lineker. Cheese and Owen. Cheese and Owen. That's the <laughs> I mean, it's, I, it, it's a much less successful pun than Salt and Lineker. It really is. <laughs> um, obviously, Smokey Everton, Beckham, they had Smokey Beckham as well. I was going to say, Everton were very conflicted because Blue Packet, but it's got Owen on it. <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> Shall we move on to Crowdrate? Yes, should we um, move away from crisps and laughing at Everton to Crow Jane? Again, this highlights the musical flexibility in the album. There's like a bit of, I don't know how you describe it, like a bit of freeform jazz uh, symbols going on in, in the background. Um, it's fairly simple musical accompaniment. 
It's an original song, but it's inspired by a traditional blues song. The story of it it itself, and please correct me if you had a different interpretation of it, but it indicates that um, the titular character is um, raped by a number of miners and she gains revenge on the miners who did it by killing them all decreasing the yep. op- the population of the town by 20. Indeed, that is exactly the interpretation I have. So I, I, I have I have no correct... No correction is necessary. So you said about the, the sort of jazz style, uh, the bass line is it's clearly that. It's, again, it tells of a mis- mischief within. It, it's almost the sort of bass line you'd hear in a Pink Panther movie. <laughs> <laughs> which, which seems very wrong, given the subject matter. It... it but it's again. I think it's really important this that that after the tragedy of the kindness of strangers, here you have a song in which the protagonist Crow Jane gets her revenge. It's a great revenge tale. Uh, so as well as that bass line and and the symbols, as you say, there's a persistent tremolo guitar part all the way through, which is quite understated, but it's always there and it gives such great depth to the song yeah and i really really like crow jane this is one of my favorite tracks on the album it's brilliant it is it's it's so well it, it, again it's really well done lyrically musically the balance of it it's it's so well done all right i have nothing more to say about crow jane okay so we then move on to essentially the song that brought about the album the centerpiece of the album, one might say. O'Malley's Bar. And the story of O'Malley's Bar, the actual song, um, is so Nick Cave, it's untrue. <laughs> so the idea for it came to him as he was uh, woken, by, as he describes, by the sound of noisy holidaymakers in some god-awful German town like Essen. <laughs> if you are from Essen, I apologise. This is Nick Cave's words, not mine. I've never been to there. I'm sure it's fine. So after he fell asleep by the hotel pool, he had a hangover and he just couldn't be arsed, didn't have the energy to get back to his room. So (laughs) these people who were just disturbing him in his hangover and his general malaise, he started writing a song, imagining giving each each of these holidaymakers a name and then working out ways to execute them. I mean, we've all done it. I mean, it's fucking dark, but... We've all we've we've all done it. <laughs> so uh, so he started this, and then he he continued every time he he wrote a new bit. Every time he basically came across someone who annoyed him, <laughs> to the point when he first played the song to the rest of the band, and like he he sang about thirty verses, and they went like, "We get the point, Nick. We <laughs> the like these are all the people. The, this is your list. These are all the people that have annoyed you." So I've, uh, and correct me if my numbers are wrong, my count is 40 verses, 15 minutes, 12 murders. Yeah, it's, so he's not he's not murdered everyone. So, you know, <laughs> there's something. So, yeah, he walks into, he, the, the protagonist walks into O'Malley's bar, orders a drink and then lays waste to everyone in the place. The proprietor, his wife and his daughter, and then nine customers. As the police surround the building, he ponders using his final bullet on himself, decides against it, 
and surrenders peacefully, admiring his handiwork, let's say. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> he admires the body count. So throughout this, there's a, there's a sort of detuned piano, which puts me in mind of a tavern in the Old West. Yeah, and even the even the use of the the, the O'Malley's bar again, that's very sort of Old West. You go in, yeah. lay waste to the place, and and that kind of thing. I think there's a lineage here back to Staggerly, mm-hmm. musically and lyrically. I think it's like Staggerly, very playful musically, but understated at the same time. I think lyrically, it claims numerous times I have no free will. So it, it is the protagonist channeling the spirit of, of, of Staggerly to, to commit these atrocities. He's certainly getting off on the carnage he's creating in the same way that, that yeah. Staggerly was. It's brilliantly macabre. It's funny in the same way that The Curse of Milhaven was. It's funny. It's a blackly comic tale. Too long. <sighs> okay. It's too long. Okay, I, I get I get that. It's 15 minutes long. Yeah. But because of the verses, because there's so much to tell, it never drags. For me, it never drags. I get what you're saying. It's it's a 15-minute song, and we, we've spoken many times before about our different tastes. I'm all right with 15 minutes here, to be honest with you. It's fine. Look, I have a an enjoyment for Pink Floyd stuff, so I'm not opposed to a 15-minute song however for, i think for me the by 10 minutes i've got the i've got the gist i've got <laughs> so the point so of the you song. are like the rest of the bad seeds saying we get the point nick <laughs> yeah i i understand these people have pissed you off i've had like all right okay you've you've had 10 minutes fulminating murdering everyone <laughs> sounds right come ahead let's let's uh crack on so yeah for me it's it, it's just a little too long no i get it I can understand it. It's not for me. And as I said, well, you didn't acknowledge me when I said we've all done it. So maybe that reveals something very dark about my character, <laughs> but I certainly have. <laughs> no, every, everyone's just uh, had the thought that, oh, that person's just done me head in, or those people, or, I mean, you may you may be full Homer Simpson, and you, people may make the list, you know? <laughs> well, we've all wanted to go Michael Douglas and falling down at some point. <laughs> well, like... We've all been woke- one minute past. We've all been woken up at six o'clock in the morning at Glastonbury by the noisy. Pr- just fuck off, will you? I'm trying to sleep. I've just come to bed. Fuck off. Now, do you know? Do you know what now? Like because obviously we are both getting older. So it used to be the noisy prick going back to their tent, um, waking us up at six o'clock in the morning, and um, when I've had half an hour sleep at Glastonbury. Now it's um, the prick on a Sunday morning mowing their grass at seven seven o'clock. <laughs> Why are you cutting your grass then, you dick? Yeah. Fuck off. Right, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> uh, so I like O'Malley's Bar, um, and I don't mind the length of it, but there we go. I, d- I don't dislike it. I, I, as I say, I just think it for me it could do with the... Yeah, I get shorter. it, I get it. All right, uh, I've got nothing else to say about it, though. Okay, so then we move on to the final song of the album, which is Death Is Not The End, um, a cover of a Dylan song, a beautifully playful um, cover of a Dylan song um, from Dylan's gospel phase. Um, the only song on the album that does not include a murder. Indeed. Um, and includes PJ Harvey, Kylie, and Shane McGowan on vocals, amongst others. Mm. Um, and... You know, it's so Nick Cave himself 
uh, describes it as just a kind of jokey little punctuation mark uh, to the whole thing. Um, there's a tongue-in-cheek to that song, even though I think it's quite be- quite a beautiful rendition. I completely agree with him yeah. that it, it, is, it is a proper little cheeky uh, song to stick on the end, particularly given that it's from that that Dylan phase. Yeah, so it was 1987, wasn't it? Um, which, as yeah. we've spoken before, was was not his most... Um... Dylan shite period. <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> I was trying to dance around it, but yeah, Dylan shite period. And I don't even like his version of the song. I, no. I don't even, Bob Dylan's version of the song, I don't like it. This this version is great. I think I think the way you have different people coming in uh, with, the, with their version, and then they obviously join the the collective as they as they as they sing the chorus. It, it's it's really well done. It is a beautiful rendition, as Nick Cave says. It is a beautiful rendition. So I said, yes, it's wry, but it's poignant at the same time, exactly as you just said, and exactly as Nick Cave said. Uh, the only other point I want to make, Damon Albarn was very clearly listening to this when he wrote Tender. <laughs> oh, my baby. <laughs> you listen to those two songs together, this version specifically, and Tender, and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's a great way to end. It's a great way to end. It is ironic. It is right, um, but it's beautiful at the same time. So, yeah, uh, and that brings us to the end of the album. So, uh, Tim, as as is traditional... Oh, you, you want me to do it now? Because last time you decided to fucking do it yourself. Do you want me to do the reviews now, do you? Make your mind No, up. no, I've got I've got some stuff on the reviews. <laughs> as is traditional, you you do all the sales bollocks. <laughs> all right, okay. <laughs> Fuck off. It sold some copies. Off you go. <laughs> uh, right, okay in terms of sales and charts and stuff. It reached number eight in the UK, number five in Germany, number three in Australia, number one in Austria, confusingly. Uh, also number one in Norway and Sweden. Of course, the fucking Scandinavians love an album about murder porn. Oh, they were fucking loving it, wearing their hooky jumpers and, um, <laughs> yeah, talking about bridges. How many dark dramas with fucking grey filters did this album inspire? <laughs> That's the true legacy of this album, and it's not one I'm pleased with. Which now explains the cover. <laughs> yeah, the cover's far too colourful. <laughs> it was certified gold in the UK, having sold over 100,000 copies. Uh, as of 2001, global sales had exceeded 1 million copies. So, as we said right at the start, this was the album, and yes, Wild Roses in particular, is the song that really propelled Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds into the mainstream and certainly brought them into the consciousness of both Kevin and myself. Now, in terms of reviews, I uh, well, I'll let you go because you said you've got some stuff on reviews. I, I don't have anything more on, on, on facts or... Okay, so I've got a couple of quotes. Um, so they were generally pretty good, by and large. Uh, Q gave it a 5 out of 10, which... I've not managed to to read that review and understand where that came from, but yeah, curse UQ magazine for going out of business and taking your website down. <laughs> Bill Bill Van Paris of uh, Rolling Stone called the album literate, sultry, and tortured, and described it as the performance of Nick Cave's life. Stuart Berman in Pitchfork um, brilliantly describes the album. He said, Cave isn't indulging in some subversive genre exercise. He was examining the very idea of poetic license, 
pushing the limits of what an artist can get away with in song when writing in character, which is exactly what he was doing here. Ah, that's that's perfect. So I've got more quotes from that Rolling Stone review. Uh, don't worry, I'm getting to him. We'll get there. Don't we? <laughs> hey. So, yeah, Bill Van Paris said, Cave updates the traditional murder ballad with camp cynicism and satire, transforming the genre into a timely vehicle of catharsis. One feels as though one has witnessed the grand finale of a deranged floor show. Tony Sherman in Entertainment Weekly stated that it, the album was not for the squeamish, the rare pop record that resonates with the weight of the ages, which sounds a bit wanky to me, but I know what he's saying. When when you said Tony Sherman, I, I genuinely wanted you just... Jay go, Sherman. It, it stinks. It stinks. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, do you want to hear what Nobby McGee said? Let's hear what he has to say. I'm sorry to let you down, guys. Is Oh, is he not going to say something fucking ridiculous? He's not going to say anything about this album. He appears not to have reviewed this album. I'm very sorry. Which is not a not a shock, really, because they weren't they weren't big at this stage. It was this that kind of pushed them on, really. Yeah, they do. I mean, I've, I've still got something from him. Not 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 loads, but something from him. So the, 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 he did review the best of Nick Kevin the Badsy's album from 1998. He labelled it as a dud, uh, meaning it was a bad record whose details rarely merit further thought. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not going to add to that because life can't be arsed with you. Don't worry, guys. He's back next week and he's back with a fucking vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, just a couple more things to say, legacy-wise, in terms of best-of lists. From 1996, Melody Maker put it at number 16 on their Best of the Year poll. NME put it at number 7. So very highly regarded within the UK music press, at least. But as you said, not not hugely re- widely reviewed out with the UK. But a good album. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a, it's an album that I that I've had a, a long history with and I really do enjoy. And it, it is great. Okay. Uh, are we ready for best song, worst song? I, th- I think I think we are, really. All right. Well, um, you took us through the album, Kev, so do you want to go first? Okay. Um, so I will start negatively. Um, so I will go with my worst song. And it, it, is li- it is literally down to the length of the song. So it's O'Malley's Bar. I just think it's a little, little too long for my liking. And that's the that's the only real thing I've got with it. Okay. And your best? Best is, best is a toughie. I think I'm going to come down on Henry Lee. Henry Lee is, it's brilliant. Um, the balance in it, the performance from both singers. It, it's, a, it's a brilliant piece of work, but there's so many others I could I could pick on the album. I was quite close to picking The Curse of Milhaven, um, not just because it's my partner's favourite song, but because of how playful and how fun it is in in comparison with other elements on the album. But yeah, it's uh, it's Henry Lee. Okay, I, 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 I thought you were going to go with Henry's dad, to be honest with you. I thought you were going to go with Stagger Lee, but because um, I know you, you've effused about that song uh, for a very long time. Indeed. Uh, all right, so... I'll go best song first, because your partner's right. It is The Curse of Millhaven. Everything good about this album encapsulated into one song. Malice, malevolence, and mirth, all within 
five minutes, five and a half minutes. It's brilliant. I absolutely love it. It's fantastic. So yeah, sorry, your partner is absolutely right and you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Much as I, I do love Henry Lee, I, I adore Henry Lee. Curse of Melhaven's brilliant, love it. My least favourite, my worst song, this feels really harsh because I like every song on this album, but I've got to pick a weakest. And for me, it's The Kindness of Strangers. It just... Which, which you were clear about. Exactly. It just didn't resonate with me as much as everything else on the album, but I still like it. So I've got to pick one. So yeah, that's what I'm going with. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, so that is that is Album Clash this week, an unusual one on the basis that we've reviewed an album about murder. And also I've let... On the first, the first, um, the first of the clashes, really. You have, you have, and um, uh, more of this, please, because it uh, it gives me um, just a bit of time to relax before I get too drunk. <laughs> Whereas I can relax right into the second half. <laughs> that said, Kev, it's over to you. What uh, what what Twitter been up to this week? <laughs> so, if you want to come across the views of a failed newsreader who stormed off um but seems to have a um <laughs> seems to have a view on whether women of um, a different ethnicity to him should have mental health issues or not then you can go on twitter um if you have um anything about you you'll probably avoid twitter and go to our insta which is the better version of of any of our social media output as it's done by um someone who is competent and actually knows how to do things. Uh, so, firstly, um, you forgot to mention, for both Twitter and Instagram, it is... Our Twitter is at Clash Album. Our Insta, the good thing, is Clash Album. Or if you are resolutely um, want to send an electronic mail, you can send it to albumclash at gmail.com. Oh, yeah. So I, I thought you were going to go there, and I'm delighted you did, because... Um... <laughs> Because he's a fucking fuckwit. You said mental health issues. I just think he he, he clearly has an issue with uh, with women of colour having opinions oh, <laughs> of existing. any kind. <laughs> oh, Christ. Um, what a loathsome human being. So yes, to the rest like, of the world, we apologise for him. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to. No. And he was shit at CNN. And he is literally a full kit wanker as well. Indeed. <laughs> So on that loathsome um, waste of oxygen, um, it's probably our point to uh, bring the pod to a close. It is indeed. So, yeah, uh, I've, had, I've had a lot of fun today. We're going to have a lot of fun next week. I'm going to take us through stories from the city, stories from the sea. So have a listen to that ahead of next week's show. Other than that, all I will say is that uh, thank you very much for listening. Like and subscribe, give us a review, give us the comments, all that stuff. Uh, I've been Tim. I've been Kev. And we'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Ta-ra.